Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to challenge you to follow Christ, and to inspire you to lead a consecrated life. When God calls you, can you say no? According to Calvinism, God's grace is irresistible meaning when he determines to save someone, he always achieves his goal. In other words, his call is always effectual. On the other side, Arminianism teaches that God offers grace, but people can freely choose to accept it or reject it. His call is general, and people respond differently. Here now is part five of our Calvinism versus Arminianism debate, episode 141, Irresistible Grace. Today we're talking about the eye of tulip, irresistible grace, and I'm hoping that this is an irresistible conversation that everyone enjoys and benefits from. All right, so Blake, where do we get started? What is irresistible grace, and how does this fit into the system? When we talk about tulip, I've kind of observed that once you once you get in that total depravity concept, like if you if you see that as I as I do, is it something that that is from Scripture, not read into Scripture? Um, I think basically you can't get off the train <laughs> once once you start there. You're pretty much you're pretty much going the whole way. So the rest of these, I think, follow logically from that, and then you get the the unconditional. Last week we spoke about limited atonement, and so the natural next step in describing salvation in, in these doctrines of grace would be how God does this. Cause we've talked about the fact that he does it, the fact that he chooses um, who he chooses, why he, cho- like he chooses them because they're depraved. They can't do it on their own. Um, and so this is talking about the how, how does he do it with this grace? I'm not super fond of the term irresistible, but it is what the acrostic is. And if, if me and some others keep changing it, it won't be recognizable anymore. So we'll just keep it. But the short, the short version of it, um, I really like the summary from R.C. Sproul. He says, irresistible grace does not mean that God's grace is incapable of being resisted. Indeed, we are capable of resisting God's grace, and we do resist it. The idea is that God's grace is so powerful that it has the capacity to overcome our natural resistance to it. This isn't to say that the Spirit drags people kicking and screaming to Christ against their wills. The Spirit changes their inclination and the disposition of their will so that where we previously were unwilling to embrace Christ, now we are willing and more than willing. Indeed, we aren't dragged to Christ. We run to Him and we embrace Him joyfully because the Spirit has changed our hearts. They're no longer hearts of stone that are impervious to the commands of God and the invitation of the gospel. God melts the hardness of our hearts when he makes us new creatures, Holy Spirit resurrects us from the de- spiritual death so that we come to Christ because we want to come to Christ. Um, and we want to come to Christ because God has already done a work of grace in our souls. Without that work, we would never have any desire to come to Christ. And that's why we say, as we talked about before, this idea of regeneration precedes faith. Um, Was that all R.C. Sproul there? That is. Okay. So you're saying it's not like the mafia guy that goes to the shop owner and says... I want to offer you protection, and uh, he makes him an offer he can't refuse. 
that that's not what we're saying here. Correct. So we're it's not, not about, against yeah. the person's will. Correct. It's a like that. Ta- uh, the scripture says about taking out the heart of stone and giving us a heart of flesh. So it's a it's a heart transplant or a heart change. Now you would say though, just uh, to clarify, Blake, that it's not dependent on the person's will. I mean, if God if God's grace changes the person's will, then it's really God's will that is is running the show for that individual's salvation. I would say, I mean, God's going to accomplish what He sets out to accomplish, but I don't think that He does it strong arming people. Or, um, I mean, we see that occasionally in scripture, but those tend to be the exceptions. I think in, in terms of salvation, new Testament covenant, I think it's much more uh, subtle than that in terms of this idea of God transforming the heart, bringing alive from spiritual death to spiritual life. And in that new state of regeneration, the person desires Christ and desires the things of God. doesn't mean we don't sin and we'll get into that in perseverance, but um, that's the idea. All right, so uh, Jacob, what what would your position be on this? Do you think God's grace is irresistible, or how would you how would you frame it? God's grace certainly has the the capacity to overrule our free will because He is so much greater than us, <clears throat> and God's grace uh, is certainly something that draws us. And I guess with a lot of what Blake said, I didn't really find anything I I disagreed with, but I do see that uh, God's grace uh, is not just—it's not just resistible, and that sometimes we resist Him. But I think if God's desire is to save us, I don't think it's that it's that it's automatic. I think that it's it's something that unfortunately that we can actually resist. So it's not that we're just resisting God in a general sense, but that particularly we're resisting Him in in the in the framework of salvation. All right. So you're saying that you you do believe God's grace is resistible. Yes, God's grace is resistible. Okay, so back to you, Blake. Uh, can you give us a, a couple of texts that lead you to believe that it is irresistible? Yeah. So part of this, again, we talk about this idea of logic, and so part of that, part of irresistible grace is that we are grasping it from our understanding of Scripture before then. And again, obviously, I'm coming to this with a certain grasp of Scripture, but I think that this is something that is read out of the text, not something that's read in it. Uh, And going back to Isaiah in chapter 55, verse 11, the Lord says, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So in that text in Isaiah, and there's a bigger context there as he's speaking, but the focus that I wanted to point to there is he says, my word won't come back empty. It will accomplish that which I purpose. It shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So that's to say just the nature of the way that God works. When he says something, he's going to bring it to pass. And in Hebrews 9.15, it says, Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance, or the promised eternal inheritance, then there's more stuff from Romans 8. I could revisit uh, John. Oh, hold on. Yeah. Back to uh, Hebrews 9. Can yep. you make your point on that? Christ is the mediator of this covenant so that those who are called may receive the inheritance. So that's talking, like to me, that's talking about, you know, you're talking about the unconditional election, the limited atonement, those who fall into the category of the called versus uh, those who are not called. So those who are called may receive this inheritance. And in Romans 8, 
uh, you have this chain of salvation. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. What I'm seeing is the effect of the Spirit. And that's, again, why I think if effectual grace or effectual calling is a better term. Like, God gives this call, and it has its effect. Um, the other thing I wanted to point out was Acts eleven eighteen. And they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God. And then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Um, and that term, granted repentance, also appears in Second Timothy 2.25. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. He doesn't say grant them forgiveness or grant them salvation. He says grant them repentance. That also ties back into John. Uh, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. This idea that God has to grant something. Um, and in this case, what he's granting is repentance. And then there's that thing in Acts 13, 48. Uh, the Gentiles heard this. They began rejoicing, glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So again, all these passages to me as a whole are coming to this idea of God's, the effect of God's grace will be what God desires it to be. Um, so it's not like he's throwing it out and just hoping that it works. He's ensuring that it's going to work. He's granting repentance even to Gentiles. And so that's the general summary. I could go a few more places. but Would you say that it is a slight against God's character to suggest that he would invite someone and that person would snub him? You, you know, I don't know if that question made any sense. Yeah, it made sense. So I'm not saying that as much as I'm saying, because I think people, the gospel presentation is put out every day around the world and people in every setting are resisting it and, and rejecting it because that's their nature apart from God. Uh, what I'm saying is that if God purposes specifically to save a person, as we talked about limited atonement, that idea of specific and personal grace, that he's going to have his will done with them. He's going to grant them repentance. He's going to give them this gift of faith, as we talked about in Ephesians 2 a few weeks ago, and they will receive this promise that his word will accomplish its purpose. So it's more to say, I think just looking at God, that I don't think that God is impotent. And I don't think either of you guys think that either, but like he's not really desiring people, everybody to be saved and he just can't do it or he just lacks the power to do it. And he's just hoping people will respond. I don't see that as the God uh, in scripture. And I don't think that that's what you're presenting either, but I'm just, that's more what I'm juxtaposing. Would you like to respond to some of his points there, Jacob? You're saying that God's call and desire is effectual. And so when God calls, he calls effectually. That's correct. Uh, okay, well, I think of uh, Acts 17, 30, and 31, where Paul says, Therefore, having overlooked uh, the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to, to, to men that all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. <clears throat> so you say that God's, God's call is effectual when he calls and desires. And I know we've talked about this in the past, and this is yet, uh, I would say, another strong verse that God desires all people everywhere to repent. Therefore follows all men everywhere will repent. But obviously that's not the case. So what do you think about that? So to answer your question, Jacob, um, I haven't specifically looked at this particular passage next before. I think it's an interesting statement. Um, but as I'm sure all of us are, like, we, I don't think we want to be setting one scripture against the other. I think we want to see how all of scripture works 
together. And I think that, together. I mean, that's what you're doing too. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I say that because I think when we approach the Bible as a whole from, and of course this is my own understanding, the overwhelming passage that I see is a God who's constantly working through mysterious circumstances, uh, working out all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Um, and also there's that bit about in, uh, Romans about he called, he justified, he glorified. So if everyone is called based upon that passage, I could then say, then everybody will be glorified, justified, this and that, because I think we could wrestle with that. We could probably spend a whole day wrestling through that. Um, but that's the, the gist of it, is it, I think. In the grand scheme of scripture, I think I see God working out salvation in his way in specific people. But that's just my grasp of it. So we could come back to that off script. All right, uh, Jacob, did you have other points to make? Uh, yeah, I just wanted to uh, respond to <clears throat> Isaiah 55. Uh, my word which goes forth in my mouth and will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I, what I desire and so forth. Uh, and so I believe that too. But what is it that God desires? What, what, what purpose is his word going forth? Is it that everybody he calls will inevitably uh, be saved, or is it that he just calls with the desire for them to come to him? Because in Isaiah uh, 65, 1 through 12, uh, it's talking about Israel, and there's a group in Israel that has been faithful to them, and that there's a group that has not been faithful to him. And in verse 10, uh, he says, Sharon will be a pasture land for flocks in the valley of Acre, a resting place for herds for my people who seek me. But you who forsake the Lord, who forget my mountain, who set a table for fortune, and who fill cups with mixed wine for destiny, these are false gods he's talking about, I will destine you for the sword and all of you who bow down to the slaughter because I called, but you did not answer. I spoke, but you did not hear. And you did evil in my sight and chose that in which I did not delight. For these people who are not faithful to God, uh, who end up following other deities, God says, I called you, but you did not answer. So it seems as though in this case, God, God wants them. He called, but for whatever reason, they, they, they chose not to be faithful to that call. All right. So just, just to be clear, your belief, Jacob, is that when God called, well, do you believe God calls everyone? That's what Acts 17, 30, and 31 sounds like. Okay. And so, some other passages in the New Testament. Yeah. All right. So you believe God calls everyone, and then out of those who are called, those who respond to the call are chosen? Is that how you would interpret it? Yeah, they are um, in the sphere. What? They are God's elect. Yeah, God's elect. In the time of, you know, in the time of Christ, they are in Christ. And then, Blake, your view is that God only calls those whom he chooses to become saved. Right. I, I think I'm collapsing the term called uh, in on that word chosen, like kind of folding them into one term right. um, or one theological concept of calling or chosen um, as opposed to the general proclamation of the gospel or in the case of Isaiah 65, God's word going out to national Israel um, as his word now through the gospel goes out to the world. And one thought this, we'll get into this more in perseverance, but in first John two nineteen it says they went out from us, but they were not of us for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might be plain 
that they all are not of us. You see this distinction between the people that are, like we talked about the visible and invisible. So like the people that are apostatizing in national Israel in Isaiah 65 would be the visible national Israel, but the faithful ones would be invisible national Israel. You know, that distinction of God's chosen people um, or like with uh, Elijah when he's out in the, and, he, and he's just despairing and God says, no, I've preserved however many hundreds or thousands of people, um, you know, this remnant. So I see that idea throughout scripture. That's my, resp- my response to that. Yeah, so, I mean, definitely there are people who go forth out of the church. Uh, there's a particular group of people in First uh, in, in, in John who are like this. Certainly there are people who are in the church that are not really of the church. They're not, they're not really of Christ, they're not really of God. Uh, certainly that's the case. But to say that that's all people who are not saved or who are not really chosen by God, I think, is to say something different. To the point you made just before, so you said there does seem to be a universal call that God gives, but there's also another effectual call that God gives? I would say there's the general proclamation of the gospel that the church is commissioned to go out and speak to everybody um, to proclaim good news. And those who are elect or those who God has chosen will be effectually called through that. They will... They, the spirit will regenerate them. They will respond in faith. Um, so everybody that hears the gospel is not necessarily receiving a call from God. It's just those that he calls through the gospel. Other people, it just falls on deaf ears, right? I think so that, to speak. Like that, Isaiah yeah. 6, that right. Jesus quotes, they have eyes, but they don't see that whole... Right, and that's just the general idea to me is that there's the, there's the general calling... Uh, that does go out because we don't know who's good, who is going to respond and who isn't. I mean, that's the case in either either system. So we go out and and cast the nets, and but it's God who's responsible for the catch. That's a good fishing analogy there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just like picturing this fisherman up on the deck, and the net brings in all this fish, but also like a, a an old shoe and like other stuff that he doesn't want. And he just throws it back into the water. But, uh, Hey guys, I was wondering if we could run through, uh, this parable in Matthew 22, because it's something that just kind of kept resonating as you guys are speaking on this subject. And it, it deals with wedding that people get invited to. And, uh, just like to hear both of your takes on, you know what this is saying because I mean obviously parables are uh, need to be interpreted because they're not direct speech they're metaphorical or figurative uh, so I'm just going to read this out Matthew 22 verse 2 the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast but they would not come again he sent out servants other servants saying tell those who are invited see I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. (laughs) That's a very strong response. Well, that's the great thing about parables. You, You put things as starkly as you can. Then he said to the servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. 
And those servants went out to the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at, look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. Uh-huh. And he said, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. What, <laughs> what's your, I'm sure you can read it either way, but I'm just curious like how you would interpret this sort of a parable. Who wants to go first? Yeah, so there's this wedding uh, that the king gives for his son, and he gives out an invitation to people to come to the wedding. But it says that they were unwilling, that they didn't want to come. They rejected <clears throat> the invitation. And so the king was really upset and set their city on fire. Um, and instead, he said, uh, he said to his slaves, go out and uh, invite other people who, who do want to come. And it says that uh, in verse 8, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Why were they not worthy? They weren't worthy because they didn't respond to the invitation the king had gave. And so it seems just off the cuff. God is inviting people to this wedding, to this celebration that we have um, in Jesus. But unfortunately, not everybody, not everybody responds to that call that God gives. Off the cuff, that's what I... Yeah, I know I'm just dropping this on you guys, but uh, it, it it's interesting to me, and it seems to relate. The part that that also is, is unusual is that uh, he brings in the bad and the good, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. And then uh, not everyone that even responds to the invitation stays in the wedding feast. Like this one guy gets kicked out. He didn't bring the tuxedo, I guess. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, he's yeah. like, why aren't you wearing wedding clothes? And his treatment's really harsh, too. He gets bound hand and foot, <laughs> thrown into outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know, he's like, he's sad, but he's also angry. Yeah. The gnashing <clears throat> of teeth is usually a sign of anger. Because he's been rejected. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's really a lot going on here. And the, the punchline is the topic of our conversation. Many are called, but few are chosen. So, uh, Blake, how would you run this through? I mean, obviously, the, the first group were not elect right? because they rejected it. Yeah. Tell us what else. Part of this, he's talking about the kingdom may be compared to this. So, obviously, he's talking about salvation, as Jesus does in many of his parables. This is just a quick reading, but as you were listing it, all I could see was uh, a juxtaposition of national Israel who had depart, you know, missed Messiah and were for the most part, rejected. Obviously, God's going to call some of them back. We see through the later scriptures. Um, but like God, then the, the, the invitation to, of the kingdom goes out into the streets. Um, and it's not based upon the ethnic or moral standing of the people. It's just out there. But then this one shows up. And this, you know, and I'm mixing parables here a little, but this, almost, this reminds me, uh, or not parables, but this reminds me of Jesus' statement about that many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, and I will say, I never knew you. To me, that's who this guy is, is one of those people who's like showing up at the gate like he thinks he's, he's like, I'm supposed to be here. And he goes, no, who are you? I don't know you. Um, and he throws them out. And then there's this line, many are called, few are chosen, juxtaposing the ideas of calling as a general proclamation and choosing or God's election choice specifically determines who will 
who is worthy, who's going to enter, um, is by God's choice, not because it doesn't say many are called, but few responded, which would have been, I think, a more uh, Arminian friendly <laughs> uh, conclusion to that verse. But to say fewer chosen is an offensive statement, uh, similar to the offense that's given uh, in the previous references to John chapter six, where Jesus talks about this idea of no one can come to me. Um, and as we talked about uh, last week in John 10, I believe, about um, about the sheep and the difference of my sheep versus you're not my sheep and this and that. Um, and there seems to be a distinction made not on the basis of the people's action, but on the basis of God's choice. Uh, so that's my grasp of it. Okay. What you reminded me of there, Blake, is the historical context of the parable. Uh, Jesus is coming to the end of this this gospel here. He's in the last week of his life. The triumphal entry happened in the previous chapter. And what you made me think of when you mentioned national Israel is like that call of God through Christ really went to the leaders. Yeah. And the leaders completely rejected it. Yeah. And then you got some demon possessed girl like Mary Magdalene. And she's just like, I'll go, you know? So, I mean, I think there is a very, like contextualizing it help, helps us to get it out of like the abstract theology realm and into his own world and his own audience and sort of like his own self-understanding of how people are rejecting him. Even in that very sermon he's preaching, there are those among the scribes, among the Pharisees, among especially the Sadducees who are listening in, trying to find a way to destroy him. And this, I think, would be very convicting for them to hear. You know, then you have some people that show up, and I'm sure you guys have seen this before in uh, home home Bible studies or in church services where they are not they are not of the chosen. You know, they show up because you know it's something to go to, free food. Yeah, or free. Yeah, there you go, classic free food. And uh, we actually had one guy on a Sunday morning who made a grandstand speech. Do you remember that, Blake? He, uh, he stood up in the back and he made some sort of proclamation about how we're lost or evil. And then he, I don't yeah. know if he was escorted out or if he just left of his own. Here at church on a Sunday? <laughs> yeah, this is some years ago. It's just like some, some random guy. I'd never seen him before or since. And uh, maybe it was like a second Sunday. And uh, my father was preaching. He stopped the sermon. Obviously, Well, this guy started like yelling from the back. So that stopped it. <laughs> and then... Um, you know, the guy finished and he, he left. It wasn't like a long speech. It was like a minute or two. And uh, dad's just like, all right, let's pray for this guy. And so we all stopped and, and he prayed. And then he picked up preaching again. And <laughs> it's like, okay, I guess that's what you do in that situation. But like, that's like the random guy that shows up uh, for whatever other reason. But um, yeah, it's definitely an interesting parable to think about. What, what else do we need to talk about on this subject? Uh, either of you have any more material? We've talked about some of the core ideas and contentions that exist therein. And for me, you know, we talk about this idea of um, regeneration preceding faith, or in your case, faith preceding regeneration. Uh, and I did want to make a distinction. I don't know if I've made it before this, but because it, it, it does come to light in this idea of efficacious grace, because the idea is the spirit regenerates, you know, we're brought to life, and then we can respond, and then we, we're alive in this whole thing. You know, because we're talking in very technical theology this whole time. You know, using sanctification, justification, glorification, salvation, uh, atonement, all these very big theological terms, which 
just like any rigorous academic study, you're going to have specific terms to describe specific concepts. But I think in the terms of regeneration preceding faith, I, I did want to make a distinction. Um, to my understanding, that's a logical preceding in terms of like the, the temporal thing. I think it's probably uh, fairly instantaneous. Like, I don't think it's like, oh, you're regenerated. And, Whoa, now I think it's like a... Happens up. Right. I think it's, yeah. I think it's simultaneous in the life of the believer. So when all of a sudden you're awakened and you see your need for a savior and you reach out, it's because you were regenerate in that moment. That's my understanding of it. So that, so to say that it's the logical order of salvation, not necessarily that it's chronologically this big uh, difference of time. And I would also say that in, in these things, like we're, we're approaching the Bible in a systematic way, not that we're trying to impose ideas on the scripture, but rather that we believe God is not a God, the author of confusion um, and that he unveils mysteries and he's revealed stuff to us. And so when we come to the text of scripture, we want to learn from it and be taught by it. But we also believe that scripture um, interprets scripture. And so that creates these systems of thought because of that. I mean, I think, I think no matter what you do, you're going to have a system of theology. It's just, are you doing it uh, as you are and as, and as I'm trying to do um, intentionally where we're looking at the Bible as a whole and addressing all these different issues and, and seeing how they fit together and seeing how, you know, we see uh, in Genesis 50, Joseph says, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. And you see this repetition of this idea of God's sovereignty. And then you see um, man's inability and man's falling. And then you see God calling and you see statements of Jesus and John and things in Romans. So I think part of it is this holistic view where I'm not, I don't want to pin down on one verse necessarily. Uh, and p- put it against the whole of scripture, like the classic Hebrews six text, right? To, to push that against everything else. I think instead I want to see how that fits in the, in the flow of, the, of its book, but also in the flow of scripture. So for me, irresistible grace or efficacious call grace, um, or effectual calling is the logical outflow of this system that is biblical, but it's also something I see in the pages of scripture. So that's my summary. So Blake, would you say that Without irresistible grace, God is not sovereign. In other words, if people can tell God no, then he's, he's not really sovereign, right? I mean, is that, is that really what's at stake here? Well, I think, so again, to go, come back to that earlier Sproul quote, the, the gospel is rejected every day, all the time by people, and has been through the centuries. So it's not a matter of people resisting him, and people are resisting God's um, revealed will all the time. The law, God's law is broken all day, every day around the world. So it's not a matter of that as much as when God is purposing to save individuals, those individuals will be effectually called by the spirit because God's going to accomplish his purposes. Uh, so I think it's just a, a logical outflow from what we see in scripture. And, uh, you know, my understanding of my own experience of, of being regenerated and, and having saving faith um, wasn't this big emotional thing, but it was all of a sudden just a, a turn. And all of a, I heard the gospel and all of a sudden, you know, I'd heard it my whole life, but in this moment, all of a sudden I was, it, it, it was alive to me and it wasn't, you know, the big emotional, Oh, I'm going to lose my salvation. And I have to believe, you know, like, like the, the classic summer camp thing. Oh, I got to, re, re, you know, get resaved every year, you know, like resave a video game, you know, every year. And, but after that, it wasn't that it was okay. I'm, I, I, I saw the picture and it was, it was Jesus sacrifice that saves me. Right. So that, so You're we're quit. saved. Yeah. It was saved by the object of our faith, not necessarily by the intensity or even, uh, 
the perfect consistency of our faith. I think we'll get into this in perseverance, but I think Christians are capable of very serious sinful falls. I mean, we could just look at David. I don't think that's an indication that uh, people are falling away, that those people are necessarily falling away from, from God's plan. Cause like David, we see he got brought back. Yeah. I'm kind of interested in your response here because I guess I always felt that the Calvinists were like the super hardcore sovereignty of God people. But the, the only way to have true, absolute sovereignty is if God determined everyone's actions all the time. And then once again, you're collapsing into universalism. Or determinism. Or, yeah, determinism. Or an evil God. I mean, because the world is full of evil. So, uh, and none of those are obviously acceptable uh, interpretations. So, yeah, I would say the Calvinists don't have an absolute sovereignty position. Um, the Arminians certainly don't have an absolute sovereignty position. There are different ranges of thinking about how much is God in control, uh, because the Calvinist limits that to those whom God chooses, as opposed to everyone, right? Well, I would say, uh, and this gets into a whole different podcast series, if we get into Providence, um, I think you can see God's action even through unbelievable, like Balaam and the donkey, like even, even in, in, or Jonah running away, like you can see God's providence redirecting the course of where, where people are trying to go. Like if, when he wants to accomplish something, he's going to do it. And even if he's using unbelievers or, or like all the, the wicked nations that he rose up to punish Israel. It wasn't like, and we talked about this in the first total depravity one. It's not like he's creating fresh evil in their heart. He's merely letting them, you know, letting off his, his general grace and letting them go deeper into their wickedness. So that, that gets into a bigger conversation. But I think in particular, as we're talking about salvation, soteriology, you know, the, the theology of salvation, I think uh, God's sovereignty is active in his election and passive in his uh, reprobation as he passes over. Right. So you're you're saying that God's sovereignty extends to those who are not his elect as well, but he's not causing them to do everything they're doing. Right. Is that And not that he's causing the elect to do everything they're doing, but right. that he's That's for salvation. Right. But that he's he's bringing about salvation in and positively creating faith in the hearts of the elect where the reprobate he merely passes over and leaves them to their own devices like it talks about in Romans. All right, Jacob, so what's your view of the whole situation here? All right, so uh, I've noticed as we've gone through Tulip, we're heading into P next, that Calvinism and Arminianism on some points are not that different. In my mind, uh, I thought they were black and white, the uh, furthest extremes from each other, but... Uh, in some cases, in some aspects of salvation, that's not necessarily true. There's there, there's a lot of nuancing between the points. So I would say that uh, in terms of uh, irresistible grace or resistible grace, it's not an open and shut case. Uh, it seems as though that God's saving grace can be resisted. And this dichotomy that the, that the Calvinist provides, there's God's general call, but his effectual call, it seems as though if his general call is for the whole world to be saved, then his effectual call would follow. But clearly that's not the case. So I feel like there's a problem there. But I've enjoyed the the, the conversation thus far. And there's a lot of, like we didn't even get to Matthew twenty three thirty seven or Luke seven thirty or I'm actually saving this for the next one for perseverance, but talking about Judas, 
Um, I didn't bring that up, but I'll bring it up next time. So there's, there's a lot here to get into. All right. Well, that's it for today. Thanks guys for your diligence and for this conversation. And we'll conclude next time. Thanks, Sean. Well, that's it for this episode. Stay tuned next week for our exciting conclusion, part six, the perseverance of the saints. So we'll see you next week for that. We're having some good dialogue on restitutio.org. Stop on by if you'd like to add your comments to this episode. And don't forget to vote. Once again, Blake has won the day on the vote. Congratulations, Blake. And uh, don't forget to come on to this episode, episode 141, and vote for which side you think won. Before closing out, I did want to just read a recent iTunes review from Apple Podcasts. This review is by JVA734, who writes, I've really enjoyed listening to this podcast. I find the variety and topics of conversation covered in the off script and interview categories both stimulating and thought-provoking. In the classes category, Sean's knowledge of Christian history adds a new perspective to understanding the scriptures in light of their cultural times. This podcast treats the scriptures with the respect they deserve as God's word and understands its main theme of the kingdom of God. Thanks so much for writing this review. And, and if any of you out there have not yet written a review, I would really appreciate it. It really does help people find this podcast, especially in the Apple Podcast app. So uh, please take the time to do that if you haven't already. And also check out the classes that are available here. I've got a class on the historical Jesus. I've got one on apologetics. I've got one on the last 500 years of Christian history and more to come. Uh, stay tuned for that. I've got uh, some something in the works on systematic theology, really uh, delving deep into biblical doctrine, looking at both supporting verses as well as difficult texts and how to explain those. So I won't say much more about that, but uh, just know that that is in the works, and it will be coming down the pipeline probably this fall. I've got a lot of material for the summer, but then in this fall I probably will be able to do that. So, So stay tuned for that. Thanks so much for tuning in, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.